Hello, I'm Andrew Slee and I've been interviewing for the Crafts Council makers who are exploring the edges of their practice. New technologies, new applications of craft and new collaborations across industry, science and art. I'm sharing two interviews here with designers who are concerned not so much with making things but with making things that make other things. They're exploring systems that can enable new kinds of making. One of them is working with tools we'd normally expect to see on a production line, assembling cars or circuit boards. But my first interview is with a maker who's concerned with machines of sorts, operating at a very different scale. Natsai Audrey Chiesa is a design researcher who's using synthetic biology to rethink the way textiles are produced. Synthetic biology is a, an emerging science that seeks to customise the functionality of living systems. So we, for example, use yeast to brew beer, but what if we could engineer that yeast to produce a pigment um, or for it to produce a flavour, a fragrance, etc. So you're taking a, f- a function that, that that organism naturally performs and you're tweaking it or adjusting it to, to produce some slightly different uh, product or output. That's right. Um, And sometimes building it from scratch to to produce something that it would not otherwise produce. And the reason why the organism is understood as being perhaps a more efficient way of doing it is because nature has evolved over 3.8 billion years to be able to move and place atoms really efficiently, really quickly. Um, And what humans have been trying to do is use engineering, sometimes rudimentary, sometimes incredibly high-tech, to do the same thing. Mm. So it's to say, um, what can we understand from how natural systems uh, build architectures around their ecosystems? Um, What is it about the relationship that these natural systems have to that particular ecosystem that means that they don't um, poison it with um, toxins, that they only use the amount of energy that they need and there's no wastage. Yeah. So I'd like to come back later to the, if you like, the broader ambition and the, and the way of thinking about the, the systems of manufacturing, particularly textiles. But before we talk about that, I'd like to ask you about your, if you like, your artisanal scale work, in particular the dyeing of um, textiles. Can you describe that project? I work with a pigment-producing bacteria called Streptomyces sedicolor. Mm-hmm. It produces um, a, a, an antibiotic that's also a pigment molecule, indicating red or um, blue in colour, depending on various factors, including acid, acidity of its environment. It naturally does this. So Streptomyces sedicolor lives in the soil. You know that smell of rain just before it rains, that's geosmin that's actually produced by streptomyces bacteria. So it's something that we've all sort of interfaced with. Mm. Um, In science, it's used a lot for research into antibiotics. Uh, So I I looked at this pigment and I'm like, as a designer, uh, what can we do with this pigment? Mm -hmm. So I have been very painstakingly articulating very specific... um, protocols or design methods or scientific methods in many ways to be able to do very specific things with this um, microbe like achieving um, you know in terms of applications with textiles achieving a a uniform dye organic patterns 
and uh, graphic prints and and then asking how to scale those things from what you can test and try on a little Petri dish to something that a, a human being can wear. And if someone can wear it, um, it's my theory that it can become an architecture as well. So what kind of products or artefacts have you made? So I have been making artefacts that are actually not related to the finished product necessarily, but to enable the finished product to emerge. In other words, the tools. So a lot of my artefacts are actually tools to be able to work with streptomyces in this way in a lab environment. Um, and the reason why I've had to make tools is because they don't exist for, these, for this purpose. So um, a Petri dish is only so big, and, and so is the incubator, et cetera, et cetera. All of these scales will determine how big the thing can be before you get to a point where you can say, right, what, how big is the fashion collection, right? We need to figure out how to scale the iterative, um, craft-orientated methodologies of working with this thing so that at some point you can specify a whole garment. Yeah. Um, but in this time scale, uh, I started the project in 2011. I've moved from a, an eight-centimeter diameter Petri dish to making um, five meters worth of fabric in this way. Um, I should say, um, I, I pioneered a way of working with it, which was to direct ferment streptomyces onto the textile. And that's where a lot of the possibility emerges from. If I was just uh, sequestering this pigment from um, a liquid broth, it would just be an ingredient that I could plug into screen printing or um, a dye bath and it would be business as usual. But the second you start growing it onto the textile, your first question is, oh my goodness, how do I control this? Um, how do I do with this invisible medium because I can't see the cells? Uh, what I might want to achieve because I have a vision about this thing that I want to build. So it's this constant tension. You talk about growing the bacteria directly on the material. How does that work? Is that happening inside a machine? Are you using your hands in that process? What's the, what does it look like to someone observing? For my purposes, we'll start with sterilising the fabric um, and any containment that it's going to sit in during a seven-day growth period, for example. To that um, fabric, we add uh, the, the medium, which is the nutrients that the bacteria live off, um, and then we introduce the bacteria to the fabric. Mm -hmm. And so the ways in which you work with media, with this uh, either broth or solid um, mix of, um, of nutrients, and determines the outcome. And so that's where the design thinking comes in. So you would have some control over the, the pattern that emerges by applying the medium in, in a particular way or mm -hmm. applying the bacteria in a particular way. And yeah. what tools do you use to do that? Improvised <laughs> devices many of the times. Um, but um, mainstays in my toolkit include uh, a range of different tweezers, a range of different sizes. I've recently added sterile gloves to that inventory, which is incredible because for the first time ever, I can actually touch um, the textiles. I've mm. never been able to touch them as I've been making them, which, which was hard. But to be able to touch the textiles, I can't tell you how that feels. It feels like you're getting closer and closer to this symbiosis with these bugs. I don't know. It's, it's crazy. Um, 
I work with a range of sterilizable containers and sometimes you can't source those so you have to make them yourself. Mm. Um, I work with a lot of stainless steel fabrication technologies to be able to build containment to be able to use um, to make prints for example. Obviously you're working with a, a living organism. It's not like screen printing or something where you're de closely determining what the outcome is going to be. So how do you make a judgment about how to apply um, the media or the, the medium or the, the, uh, the bacteria or control the conditions. Do you have a, a finished outcome in mind or, it, or is it random? Or where does it sit on that kind of spectrum? I work in two modes. One is trying to arrive at something very specific, like I want to make this particular graphic print that I designed using Illustrator. Mm. And then another one is, I really, really want to test something biological about this system. So what happens if you grow the bacteria on the textile for two months? Specifically that, that's all I'm looking for. I want to see what texture or quality um, is left on the fabric. So does the fabric even survive that process? The answer is, yeah, it does actually, which is pretty awesome. Sometimes it's to test very uh, specific things like what happens if you use, um, so I don't use any mordants with my process. What's a mordant? A mordant is a chemical that you add to the fabric um, to, to make the colour more vibrant or colour fast on, mm. on the fabric. So it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward in textile dyeing. That's, yeah. that's what everyone sort of does, but I never used one, I never needed one. Um, but I thought, you know, I should really try, like, uh, as an organic process as possible of introducing mordant. Maybe something interesting happens. And what I discovered from that particular process was that mordant kills the bugs. They don't like it. Mm. Um, but aesthetically, it's quite an interesting, um, very minimalist textile that comes from that process. So if someone talks about minimalism, then you can say, well, I know how to do that. It's not terribly environmentally efficient, um, but we know how to reach minimalism that way. We mm. can do it in other ways too. You, you know, you reduce the cell count, for example. Yeah. Um, but all of those... So, so when I approach the making, I'm always asking a question. It's never random. It's never, let's just give it a go and see. And how... So when you discover a particular effect, a, you know, visual effect color effect that you like mm. how easy is that to replicate or how do you go about replicating it? that's something that I learned uh, which was very different to sort of my design practice which was really experimental and, and we'll just go with the thing and intuitively you know these things um, but within a scientific or biological sort of context there you have to identify which exact variable it was that resulted in one thing being one thing or another. So mm. I keep lab notes, for example. Um, I don't just walk into the lab and start pottering around. Um, I have a, a, an experiment and I have an, a plan for how exactly that's going to emerge. So that if something fundamentally um, shifts that's like clearly visual that you can see, etc., you can then say, okay, what was different this yeah. time? It sounds like, you know, we think of these of disciplines of maybe of craft and of science as being quite different. But actually, um, many people working in, you mentioned, for example, you mentioned keeping lab notes, which is a sort of classic 
part of the scientific process. It's a, um, the rigor of being a good scientist. But that, the same is true of someone who's working in, in craft and experimenting with a, with a process and trying to find a, a replicable result. The same is true for a textile designer mm. working in a dye lab. You yeah. have to keep your lab notes so that you can replicate that beautiful color that you've arrived at. Yeah. So the parallels are uncanny. I mean, people don't actually understand to what extent scientists are craftspeople. Yes. I mean, they can, you know, and I really learned that when I was um, at Ginkgo. I, I run, ran several workshops with um, um, the, the people who work there. And the way that they worked with their hands, because they've been working with their hands to pipette, you know, to move liquids from one volume to um, one containment to, to the next, the way that they worked with their hands was just incredible to watch. Where if I developed a new system to do something, each time I would do it, I would brace myself because it was the first time I was having to, I don't know, pipette um, a, a gel agar in a very straight line. But if you gave that to one of them, they would be able to do that really easily because they just know how to balance <laughs> um, yeah. everything. So the the parallels between science and and creative endeavor are, are so so close that I think it's a fallacy to yes separate them. yeah. So do you did you get a sense from your, the, the collaboration with these scientists that they also saw a, a parallel maybe that wasn't immediately obvious that, that when they were watching you working, for example, keeping your notes, mm -hmm. that they were realizing that they may have had more in common with a designer or a craftsperson than they would have perhaps originally thought. What they found compelling was being able to see biology in action because so much of Ginkgo's platform is automated. It's robots moving, you know, clear liquids around that contain DNA um, and a robot telling you that it's got X amount of DNA in it you can't see that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so to be able to see like five meters worth of textile come out and you know that bacteria did that was um, a really kind of wow moment for them. And of course, I take it for granted because that's my work. And I and, you know, because of these hierarchies in society about science and art, you, you come in and you're like, oh, you know, I just do this this little thing with with textiles. But they're just like, oh, my God, <laughs> that's pretty remarkable. is an odd question. The way you describe, they talk about this bacteria, it's, it's benign, um, it's, uh, it's efficient in its use of resources and it's productive, it makes this pigment. Do, do you find yourself, how to put this, do you feel connected to it in some way? Do you feel in the way that you might a pet or a friend or, you know, obviously not a human being who can talk to you and reason with you and have an <laughs> argument and cook you dinner, but is there a relationship with the, live, with the living system? you have a fondness for it? I do. It's weird. <laughs> it's not a weird question. It, it is just what it is. I love the smell of streptomyces. <laughs> <CD color. laughs> um, it's and, and I, I just love it. And I find it amusing when people walk past me and they're like, oh, you're growing streptomyces. Ugh, I hate that smell. And I'm like, what? 
only people who don't work with it hate that smell. <laughs> um, and and then it it's such a responsive living thing that when it does things, you know that that only happened because it's alive, and that you you were a part of that critical mass of of colonies doing that thing. Mm. Um, but I also have to reconcile with the fact that it only produces pigment when it's stressed, when it's really? dying, when it's running out of nutrients. So that's my dirty secret. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's tragic. Um, but then I always harvest the cells and they grow to the next generation. It's like sourdough. Mm. You eat the bread, you keep your starter, you're going to use it again. So the, the batch at uh, UCL, I've been using it for six years, mm. the same batch over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, no, I, there's an affinity with it because it's also, it's not just, oh, you know, it's this cute living thing. It's, it's that it sets the rhythm of how you work. Yes. It, 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 it dictates everything. Um, how long an experiment is, how much prep time is required. Uh, you know, like I said, the limitations to the design pr- process because of that organism. So it's, it's, it's omnipresent. Mm. Everything that I do is, is to do with how to, um, how to work with this system that inherently doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily cooperate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds like a yeah a, a child that demands to be fed or needs to sleep on a certain schedule. So you're working on this. Uh, you know, relatively small scale, you're talking about five metres of fabric, say, bigger than a Petri dish, but not the same kind of rolls of fabric that would be used in the kind of global garment industry. You're obviously, your work is deeply about the systems of production, you know, you're working with a living system of production. Is your ambition to have some kind of, to scale this out, to have some impact on this global system of production? I have a lot of faith that this can scale, but I, I, my ambition is to help frame the how and the why so that while we're scaling it, we are making sure that we cover our bases. Because I think that there's a lot of hype around synthetic biology being you know, the next technological revolution. While it's only useful if it responds to our current crises, that's my view. That's um, not everyone's view. Mm. And what are, the, what are the areas where you believe it can have an impact? I think that it can dramatically change our sources for chemicals, compounds. This is important because fossil fuels are, you know, the very heart of textiles. When we started digging for oil, post-war we found that we could diversify what oil did for us. petroleum and so so many of our materials are petroleum based Um, they end up in landfill they can't be recycled not to mention all of the chemicals used to be to to process them Mm -hmm. so from that perspective when you look at what cd color can do and the fact that the entire thing is compostable um, it's a no-brainer 
the question now is who's willing to come together to actually create the systems change. And while we do that, how are we building that material future, that system of manufacturing, so that it actually responds to our concerns today? So I think there's a big difference, for example, to just producing the, the dye as a pigment compound and then just plugging it into the same system. That same system uses X amount of water. Mm. Whereas with biology, you have the opportunity to say, if we are engineering the DNA to do certain things, what do we need this uh, microbial factory to be able to, to achieve to meet that particular goal? Yeah, so as you say, it's not just producing a dye product, which can then be swapped out for an existing dye product. If it's, if it's more than that, so if it's perhaps um, the way that textiles are prepared for, for taking dye or production, or, or for that matter, the textiles themselves, are those also things, areas where you see the same, either the same bacteria or the same uh, bioengineering having a role to play? The idea is that you actually grow the material from a yeast and it's pigmented already. Mm. So Bolt Threads is a great example of a startup that is growing silk. They grow silk and they can um, essentially program it to have all of these incredible functions that silk normally doesn't have, like um, water resistance, uh, you know, stretchiness, you know, elasticity. It's kind of crazy. So... When we're looking at how we design with nature, or in in my example, printing and dyeing textiles, you aren't going to see that perfect uh, uniform dye that you can get from a petroleum-based dye. It's not happening. Mm. So I think it's about also changing people's perceptions about visual culture in a post-Anthropocene um, environment, visual culture driven by new technologies. We, we understand visual cu- culture that's driven by the digital. Mm. Synthetic biology or biological making with biology is going to shift that. But I think what's changed now is because you can build this thing bot- bottom up, is that where people used to associate sustainability with, I don't know, Birkenstocks and Hessian sack dresses. <laughs> you, you know, you've got bolt threads working with Stella McCartney you know, with this programmable silk that is high-tech as a performance material. So that's, I think, the things we need to consider is maybe things are going to be more unique, um, but they could actually work a lot better than they currently do. um, And we don't dump on our environment while we're doing it. My second interview is with Madeline Gannon. She works with industrial robots, the kind we might expect to see on an assembly line. But Madeline imagines a future where robots like these can share our workshops as collaborators, even apprentices, and extend our craft skills with the superhuman powers that machines can bring. She believes that if we could control and respond to robots better, we could take them out from the restricted spaces of assembly lines and work with them together in our studios and workshops. My name is Madeline Gannon. I'm a designer, researcher, and I had a studio called Atonaton based in Pittsburgh in the US. 
Automaton is a research studio inventing better ways to communicate with machines that can make things. I've worked with 3D printers and CNC routers and laser cutters and industrial robots most recently. So I, any, any machine that, could, that you can possibly talk to with a computer, I want to be in the middle talking to it too. I guess there was one particular machine that I was interested in, which was the, the industrial robot. One of your projects was installed uh, at the Design Museum earlier this year called Mimus. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that. Who, what or who is uh, Mimus? Mimus is a one-ton industrial robot that is programmed to have a curiosity for the world around her. The same sort of machine that you would find on a car assembly line or in a manufacturing context. She's the same exact robot, except I gave her a way to see the environment around her and respond in real time. And I programmed a bit of a personality um, in her so that her movements, her gesture, and the sound of her motors could all begin to communicate to the people around her in a more human-like way. To go back to that, uh, the example of the industrial robots welding cars, I mean, that's probably an image most people have seen somewhere. These are environments which are highly kind of regulated. There might be guardrails or screens covering the space where the work is happening. There are environments where humans probably aren't allowed unless the machines are all switched off. Are you envisaging a kind of a workspace, a workshop perhaps, where humans and machines are cohabiting the same space? Exactly. So we hear a lot in the news today about um, human-robot collaboration, um, where, where humans and robots work side by side. As these machines get smarter and as they're able to sense and respond to their environment when things are dynamically changing like people moving through or objects moving around um, I think that we'll see a, a closer model of coexistence or cohabitation rather than collaboration currently with collaboration it's sort of a human um, showing a robot what to do and a robot mimicking it and that's not particularly collaborative I'd rather live in a future that's more um some more dynamic range of relationships that we could have with these machines. For example, a master and an apprentice. In a master and apprentice, over time as you work together, you get a sense of your each other's cadence, each other's work habits, the pace at which you do. Um, oftentimes you don't need to communicate verbally in order to understand what the other person is thinking and stay in sync with them. This, I think, is a more relevant model for, for how these machines can be um, integrated into our lives in a way that expands and enhances what we can do rather than replaces it. What about the, the more kind of creative aspects of the working environment? I'm thinking about the way that a human maker responds to material. I'm not just talking about um, a woodworker um, using a chisel for example where mm -hmm. you know they might they might they might they're getting feedback through their hands about how the wood responds to the tool but even just even someone working with a digital tool like a laser cutter they they spot that something isn't working properly and they make adjustments to the cutting speed or or um, the thickness of the material or something like that is that something you can foresee happening with with robots and humans working together yeah i think what what excites me you know when i make tools for um, computational tools for making things with if with a laser cutter, with a CNC router, with a 3D printer, or even an industrial robot. I want to make tools that begin to expand my own creativity and expand my imagination. 
the strategy that I've used in developing these things is just to have the most fluid and continuous and direct communication to the machines that I'm uh, working with and not have it mediated by several segmented steps of design this, post-process, make a file, send it to the machine, run the machine, check what the machine does, and then iterate. You mm. know, if there's a way for me to begin to not just, you know, for your example, see what's happening with the laser cutter and see that there's an issue. Um, maybe that's that issue is something that I couldn't have predicted once the digital file reached a tangible physical material. And maybe that's something that takes my design in a new direction that I wouldn't have found had I not had that happy accident. Um, I try to build tools that that create as many happy accidents as as possible i also wanted to ask you about the if you like the aesthetic aspects of it if you do a google image search for uh, industrial robot there's a sort of archetypal sort of style if you like they 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 seem to be quite often kind of painted a uniform color i, I don't really know why they do that but you know it's like bright orange or blue or whatever it's branding is it different robot companies have different colors yes okay that makes sense so they have this kind of visual look. They also have a certain kind of sound, I think. You know, there's a, or at least there's a sound, at least in the way they're portrayed in movies, for example, there's a sound. There's a sound of, I guess, of hydraulic movement or servos moving and so on. And I wonder if those, if those aspects, the way things look, uh, the colours that we use for them, the way they sound, or for, for that matter, the way they smell, are these things that we can play with to make more sociable kind of uh, technologies for memes we're, we're trying to do something that is quite ambitious with a really restricted material palette so memes has her movement the posture she holds and the sound of her motors to try to elicit an emotive empathic response from her visitors um, and those are the only three ingredients she has to work with and in working with her so closely over the course of, I don't know, 12 weeks, um, I was able to begin to understand what she was doing just from the sound of her motors. Sort of like, you know, a mechanic can open up the bonnet and understand what's going wrong just by the sound of it. <laughs> yeah. The same sort of thing, you know, the different joints make different pitch sounds. Um, they rotate at different speeds and and those um, sort of ambient um, noises are carry a lot of information about what she's about to do whether she's about to make a fast move a small move a tweak or a, a large jump those are all things that without my eyes i can begin to internalize Just as we have digital fabrication tools that you can access remotely, you can you can have a 3D file printed at Shapeways in a different country and shipped back to you. I, I'm guessing that in the future we might be able to access robotic assembly or robotic um, resources remotely through the network. And I wonder, given how difficult it is just to design a very simple networked interface for, for example, uh, buying a book, or, or buying a holiday or a flight or something. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, how would we go about designing an interface to allow us to interact with a robot remotely? That's the unique affordance that these machines have when, it, you know, when they have their mind in the digital world and their body in the physical world. For me, when I think about how we tie that to craft, 
the the work that I do um, tangential to my robotics work all explores how we design things and make things for the body. Currently, we don't have great digital tools for designing things for the body, be it medical devices or wearables or fashion garments um, or prosthetics. These are all things that uh, that take high skill analog craft. It takes years and years to build up the tactile knowledge in making these things for unique individual bodies. In some of the work that I've done, I've built more hybrid pipelines to begin to oscillate between digital and physical processes for designing things for the body. So for example, I've built a system that lets you sketch something on your skin Mm -hmm. and with, with a stylus, and at the same time, it makes a 3D model of it. I've um, built tools that let you then begin to deposit material to print that on your skin. Um, So we're getting the analog and digital fabrication on the body. Attaching that to a robot could be as long as, you know, can, can see and respond to how a person's body is moving in space. Um, And, and it's quite delicate operation. It's something I've been working on for years now. Um, Is there great potential to magnify what a single person, a single, you know, a single craftsperson can do um, in many, many places. So let me give you an example. You know, the, the best product designer, they can design a chair and they can get that chair fabricated anywhere in the world mm. by a lot of the techniques that you said. You know, The design and fabrication of that object are decoupled from each other. However, for the, the, person who, the best person in the world who makes orthotics or prosthetics, um, they often have to go to the person who's going to be fit with that prosthetic and mold it directly on their body. Mm. Their impact, you know, the way that they craft the object and the way that the object is fabricated are tightly linked together. If we could help, you know, keep that analog craft tradition, but, but feed it into more digital fabrication tools or digital design tools so that now we have an archive, um, a recording, a digital recording of their analog process, or we have a way of a machine to digitally produce that analog design that begins to expand our impact in so many other directions. Yeah, I can see these with these very personalized objects. That's something where, yeah, where, where if you can reduce the problems of geographical distance, you can do things that you couldn't do before. Or or even, you know, produce things in parallel. So one one person who's designing a uh, wearable artifact on a person on a model can only mm. work on that one model in time. Versus, you know, an army of robotic arms, maybe army isn't a great term, a fleet, wait, that's still militaristic, Um, a bunch, a menagerie, a menagerie of robotic arms could begin to um, produce these things in parallel. Mm. That was another thing I wanted to ask you about. The, if you like, another variation when you, the moving from one robotic arm to, as you say, a menagerie of robotic arms. Mm-hmm. One of the areas of interest, I think, for people interested in the tools of uh, production or systems of production is, if you like, how animals behave, and in particular, how social groups of animals behave. You know, how can ants um, perform incredible acts of construction uh, working together? And I guess a lot of a lot of people are interested in this these approaches to design that are based on some kind of biomimicry. And I wonder if that's an area that you seek to learn from in the, in your 
design work. In robotics, especially, you know, you hear a lot about machine learning and artificial intelligence. And when people discuss this, they're really talking about how do we match human level intelligence? But there's actually a lot of intelligence that's already all around us in the world that perhaps is more simple to computationally model. So, for example, for Mimas, the driving simulation behind her movement is um, how a bird will flock to a perch. And it sort of goes, it accelerates and decelerates and settles into a point. And that's part of the reason why she has such an animalistic movement is because, you know, underlying it, it's actually a simulation of how a real animal begins to navigate the world. In other work of mine, I've used um, mycelium or magnetism or fluid simulation all as techniques as to give intuitive input to how things can grow and change um, over time. So I just find it as a as if it's a lower level, but but incredibly useful design technique, um, as well as interaction technique for making things that can move in the world have predictable, um, intuitive uh, motions. Uh, so there's potentially going to be much more overlap, at, um, I guess, as our understanding of of the way animals or bacteria or, or organisms like that behave. As that increases, and as the our, the our access to the kind of high tech stuff, the, the robotic arms and so on, as that access becomes broader, the technology becomes cheaper. We might see more and more overlaps between these worlds. Yeah, I mean, for me, when when I think about interaction design for autonomous machines, um, I my general technique is is the the poke it with a stick technique, <laughs> you know. When you're a little kid and you're playing by the pond and you see this creature that you've never seen before, you get a stick and you poke it and you see what it does. Uh, and that's how you sort of learn how this thing, um, uh, what its limitations are, what it can do, what it can't do, how it navigates the world, how far away you should be from it, how close you can get to it. It's it's just a it's a human instinct to begin to um, see how something responds to external stimulation. Um as autonomous machines like self-driving cars and drones begin to share our built environment with us, I think it can be a very useful technique to, again, imbue some legibility into how these machines are navigating the world. Mm. I, I think uh, the poke it with a stick technique is is something that a lot of makers could identify with as a, as a way of exactly. discovering the world. Thanks to Anatsai and Madeline for speaking with me for these interviews. Thanks also to the Trampery Republic for hosting us. They are a co-working space in East London for creative entrepreneurs. The music you heard was by Komiku. The show was produced by me, Andrew Slee, for the Craft Council. Thank you for listening.